Well, good morning. I want to introduce to you a friend of mine. This is Ayo Ameripola. He has been with us before. He's a friend of our community, and we have the great pri privilege of sitting under the Word of God preached this morning as he opens it with us. Many of you know that we at Seven Mile Road are deeply invested in a group called Houston Church Planting Network, and our connection with Ayo originated there and has continued in the form of a friendship and a brotherhood. I'm really proud of him and thankful for him. He's doing a beautiful work in A-Leaf at a community called the West Church that he has planted and is pastoring, and they've been so gracious this morning as to share him with us. So I'd love to pray for you. Amen. I'm thankful for you, Io. You have Amen. a real gift and anointing that's serving our city, and I'm thankful that this morning we get to Amen. benefit from it. Amen. So I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to get out of your way. Amen. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you that you are powerful and good, and your voice is pure and strong. I pray that as a result of sitting under the word this morning, that we would be a people that treasure your word and that sink our roots deeply into it, that we would be wise men and women who meditate on and cherish your word. And I pray that you would anoint Io head to toe. I thank you for the ways that he has already served our family in the secret places, loving and preparing this text. I pray that now this would be an act of joy and worship for him and that it would be transformative for us. Bless and strengthen my brother as he opens the scriptures with us. We love you and thank you in advance for what you intend to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please welcome Aya? Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, it is a joy to be back here. Um, I told the prayer team this morning as I was praying with them, man, I woke up excited this morning. And uh, I don't always wake up excited every Sunday. I know I should, but I don't know if it's because I was coming here. Um, I really don't know what it is. I was just really, really excited. And I just want to make a beeline uh, just to thank you all, this church, the elders, uh, man, you all have been a huge joy and encouragement to us. We planted the West Church, as uh, Pastor Jeremiah said, in January of 2022, so last year, about a year and a half old. And man, when I get like encouraging emails from you, when I get, hey, I, we want to pray for you during our service, uh, like stuff like that, it just, to know that other churches throughout the city are praying for us and encouraging us, man, it just does me a world of good. And, uh, you know, I could be up here all day talking about how much I love your pastor. Uh, but one thing I will say, I have never heard anybody butcher my last name like he just did. I was like, <laughs> I said, oh, <laughs> I don't know who that, I don't know who that guy is, <laughs> but, I, but I hope he's going to be here preaching today. Uh, my name is Ayo Omo Periola. Uh, you know, Jeremiah's got a special place in my heart. Uh, I, I, I rarely have anything to correct him on ever, so that felt really good. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've realized over the past couple of years are certain questions that you ask people, if they're targeted the right way in the right season, they will elicit the plethora and even sometimes polarizing responses. For example, Aggie or Longhorn? Okay. So, <laughs> I think we just separated the saints from the ain'ts. Uh, in a lot of the group chats that I'm in, one of the recurring questions we ask a lot is, Jordan or LeBron? Now, if you answer that question in your head, LeBron, I'm not saying you're wrong, 
I'm just saying you're incorrect and you haven't experienced the greatness. It probably also means you're probably born in the early 2000s and you just didn't experience the greatness of watching greatness put on the black, white, and red in Chicago and doing his thing for a very, very beautiful season with the Bulls. But one of the questions that I found that really gets all kinds of responses when you ask people, what does it mean to be blessed? A couple years ago, if you would have put in the hashtag, hashtag blessed, you would have gotten over 100 million responses ranging from this is the way your body should look, that means you're blessed, to this is what your bank account should look like, that means you're blessed, to this is what your family should look like or your career should look like. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what does the blessed life look like? Well, in the brief time that I have with you this morning in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, in a message that I've titled, The Blessed Life, we'll see that there's three things that are really critical to understand when we are trying to answer that question of what does the blessed life look like. Three things. First, the way of life. Secondly, the way of death. And then finally, the way beyond. The way of life, the way of death, and the way beyond. The psalmist begins in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in our first point, the way of life. And he says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree that is planted by streams of water, that it does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Interestingly to me is that Psalm 1, it doesn't begin with telling us what the blessed individual or the blessed man or woman does. It begins by telling us what the blessed individual does not do. He first says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, meaning that he doesn't take his, the wisdom and the advice and the counsel of the wicked and of the ungodly. Essentially, he's saying that we all have people in our lives who are far from God. We all have people in our workplaces, in our family, in our friends groups that are distant from God. He's not telling us that you shouldn't have those people in your life. What he's saying is that uh, when you start taking their wisdom, their counsel, and start treasuring it in your heart, when you start looking the worldview, the lens through which you look and see the world, when it starts becoming what they are purporting, what they are telling you, a lens through which Jesus is not even in the picture anymore, says you're in trouble. Secondly, he says he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. When he says stand, he doesn't mean standing in be- I'm standing in between you and somebody else. What he's getting at there, when he says the way, really means the path, the road. Uh, what he's saying is uh, don't do what they do. He says don't do what they do. It's one thing to listen to the words of the ungodly. It's another thing when you move from listening to what they're telling you to start living the way they're telling you to live. It says, don't stand in the way of sinners. It means don't live your life like God is on the periphery, like God is on the sideline where you and the ungodly people that you listen to and live like are the star cast in the movie of your life, and God is nothing but an extra. Third thing he says, the blessed person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, meaning he doesn't join the symphony of the scoffers by mocking, criticizing, condemning God's people, 
God's word, or God's way. Notice the descending progression of disaster for the ungodly. First, you are walking, then you are standing, then you are sitting, he says. The blessed person who, the individual who is satisfied and fully content in God doesn't give the ungodly a foothold into their thinking because they know if I start thinking the way they think, I'll start living the way they live. And if I start living the way they live, I may end up leaving the God that I love. It's also just a side note, a high key reminder for us to keep a close eye on those who we bring close into our lives on our inner circle, our friend groups. It, you start thinking through, who are the people that are closest to me? What am I listening to? Because the reality is you start listening to and embracing and harnessing foolishness. You begin living like a fool. And then ultimately, you start viewing God and the people that he loves as the foolish ones. And it doesn't happen overnight. Nobody, listen, nobody wakes up and says, man, I want to put God on the back burner of my life. I want to walk with the ungodly. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's always subtle and it's always typically really slow. You have a desire for the Lord and after a while you're like, yeah, you know, Jesus is really good with my spiritual life. But when it comes to relationships, I'll do a little bit of Red Table Talk. I'll do a little bit of Jordan Peterson. I'll take a little bit of Andrew Tate. And I know it's toxic, but I'm just, I'm just, dep- you know, just dipping my toe in the shallow end. Nothing too crazy then all of a sudden it starts becoming the modus operandi, the way you view and you think about the world. And then you start asking yourself questions that you really never asked yourself before. Say, well, if, I mean, if they love each other, why does it matter if they sleep with each other? If they love each other, notice we often never define what love is, but if they love each other, why why does it matter their gender? Doesn't God just want them to be happy? And then you start looking at yourself like, does God want me to be happy? Man, I've been doing this God thing for a long time. I've been trying to be a good Christian. And, and sometimes it's frankly just not that fun. Maybe, maybe I, like, if God really wants me to enjoy myself, let, let me actually just live a little bit. And then ultimately what ends up happening is you get to a place when you start thinking, man, that, that Christianity stuff, that Jesus stuff, man, that, you know, that's outdated, that's primitive, that's old school stuff. It's 2023. I mean, come on now. Listen, I wish I was just making this up, but I've had a front row seat to this for most of my really Christian life, not even just ministerial life, but Christian life. I remember a guy years ago who was in a complete mess in his life, and we got connected, and we started getting it in, reading the Word, all that stuff. It's like, man, he realized, man, the the issue in my life, the primary issue in my life, the reason that has caused all the other issues is because I don't have a relationship with God. And so then we started getting him involved in the local church. He started getting poured into, started discipling him. I remember baptizing him in a pool. It was great. But there was a part of him that still wanted to kind of dip his toe back into the deep end. And I I remember, I was like, hey, man, uh, you know, after your baptism, like, you know, after Jesus' baptism, man, he went straight into the the wilderness. Like, hey, you need to expect that post-baptism will probably be some of the most biggest seasons of spiritual warfare in your life. And then I remember getting a call and hey, man, you know, this girl that was the primary reason that my life was such a mess before I started trying to follow Jesus, she's kind of worked her way back into my life, and I'm trying to figure out how should I, you know, I'm like, dude, no, 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 no. You don't need that in your life right now. And I remember moving from him just calling me, saying, Ayo, man, listen, I, I know I shouldn't be going here. She's calling me. I don't know what to do. And then it moved from, okay, man, let's pray. Next steps, that's what we're going to do. I'm coming over. Here's some Bible verses, boom, boom, boom. Then it, then it went to, Oh, I'm not even calling anybody anymore. And then it, it moved to, 
man, you're not even answering my phone calls anymore. And not, no response to my calls, not responding to my texts. I'm like, man, what, what's going on? Parenthetically, I would, you know, note that one of the ways you know somebody is on a path towards drifting is they do what I call the Houdini Act, when they start disappearing from the community of faith that loved them and poured into them. And so now I'm calling him. He's not responding to myself. We don't see him at church anymore. Ghosting me. And then I had to be like six to eight months later, maybe a year, maybe even two years later, he called me. He was like, hey, man, uh, I'm a part of this pyramid scheme. He didn't call it that, but that's what it was. I'm a part of this... (laughs) I'm a part of this, I'm, I'm doing this pyramid scheme, you know, putting your 1995 or whatever, and then and in my head I'm thinking, no. Not just because the business is ridiculous, but your life has ended up on a, are we just going to skip the last two years of the descending? First you were walking, then you were standing, now you're sitting. It started at a snowball and then it resulted into an avalanche. If you're a parent, you understand this. If you, and I got four kids, like I, me and my wife, we talk all the time. We know how important it is that we are tuned in to the biggest influences in our kids' life. What are they listening to? What are they watching? Who, who's spending the most time with them? Because we understand that will, that will be a critical impact on who is influencing and shaping their lives. The Apostle Paul would say the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And he's not just trying to make a, a law statement. Before that, he just finished talking about the beautiful resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has risen from the grave, all the wonderful things that go into the resurrection in the gospel. And then he says in verse 33 of chapter of, of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, hey, don't be confused. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. What he's saying is, hey, listen, don't be deceived. If you start living and start like consuming in the DNA, the embalming fluid that you're taking into your spirit are people who don't even believe that our God is risen from the dead, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. But after describing what the blessed man doesn't do, I love this verse 2, he now describes what he does. He says, his delight, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. When he refers to law there, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments or the first five books of the Bible. He's really referring to all of the scriptures. And he says, he delights and finds pleasure in it. Dr. Ray Orland says it like this. He says, your delight determines your destination. What, the things that you delight in the most, they will shape and they will, they will end up creating the trajectory for where your life is going. He he says, the things in your life you greatly enjoy, you will think about, you will talk about. The righteous person delights in God's word, and it results in him and her meditating on God's word. This is extremely important for us because meditation, I was talking to a pastor, and he he was telling me, like, all the the young people in this church, they they keep talking about vibes, energies, and meditation. I say, listen, that's a reality, but we often don't really define what that is. We live in a time where everybody's talking about meditation, but it's often divorced from a biblical understanding of what meditation is. Most people still view meditation in really in the sense of the Eastern religions where meditation is all about emptying your mind because they view the way to enter tranquility and peace is to empty my mind so I can't focus on anything or anyone. I just have to empty The biblical understanding of meditation is not emptying your mind, but it's filling it, and primarily filling it with God's Word. Don Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he gives this beautiful illustration. He says, your life is like a hot cup of tea. Really, it's the hot water. Intake of God's Word is the tea bag. He says, when you take the tea bag, the intake of God's Word, and you dip it in the hot water of your life, that's like hearing the Word preached on Sunday. You dip it in there, and a little bit of the flavor gets in there, 
But the reality is, it's not fully submerged, so you can't really get all the good stuff that's in it. Reading God's Word, studying God's Word, meditating on God's Word, or excuse me, memorizing God's Word, that is like continual plunges of the tea, the intake of God's Word, into the hot water of your life. As you're reading God's Word, it's another plunge. As you're studying God's Word, it's another plunge. As you're memorizing God's Word, it's another plunge. But meditation, he says, that's when you take that tea bag and you just let it hang. It submerges in the hot water of your life. All the richness, the steepages, all the rich flavors get all up in that thing, and now the water itself has been transformed. That is a beautiful picture of what biblical meditation is. You are not just dipping the Word of God in your mind, in your heart, but you are letting it marinate the way that many of you did that barbecue chicken or the ribs on 4th of July on the grill. You let that bad boy marinate. You know it tastes better after you marinate it, but it, it soaks in all the juices such it is with God's word. And why is this important? Why is this so necessary? Well, for one, Alistair Begg really gives a really good uh, uh, insight here. He says, whatever shapes your mind shapes your life. Whatever shapes your mind shapes your life. Or uh, the old King James version of Proverbs 27.3 says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you think will ultimately impact and result in what you do. The blessed man in Psalm 1 understands that his mind is a battlefield. His mind, he understands, is a battlefield. Whether you believe it or not, one of the primary places that Satan likes to wreck shop and cause chaos is in your mind. I tell our church this probably every other month. that we have a, I have a saying, it says, Satan isn't out creating new albums. What I mean by that is he has always been remixing the same song since Genesis 3. When you go back and read Genesis 3, you see Satan comes up to Eve and he says, hey, did God really say you should eat of that fruit? Number one, that's not what God said. But number two, now Eve is thinking to herself like, hmm. You know, I'm using my sanctified imagination. Hmm. Did God really say that? I mean, it looks good. I mean, the serpent, he's offering it to me. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, my husband's definitely not stopping me, so clearly there's nothing wrong here. What was Satan's goal? His goal was to lead Adam and Eve away from the God who loved them and to lead them into rebellion from the one who created them and desired them more than anything. And and how did he go about doing it, in part, by going after their mind? Listen, um, you have to understand that your mind is a battlefield. The same way when you see a player, if you go to a Rockets game, and they're playing a terrible team like the Los Angeles Lakers, and the players at the free throw line. The players at the free throw line. If you're at Toyota Center, everybody in Toyota Center, ah! you know, guys dressed up and wearing red paint. They're all, why? Because they can't touch anybody on the team. They can't touch the guy on the free throw line. They can't alter the game. They can't step on the court. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to distract, disorient, and mess him up so that he misses the free throw. They can't do anything but get in his head. Satan is no different. But remember, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And I love uh, what Jesus says. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Dr. Tony Evans in his commentary on this, he says, it's not the truth that sets you free, it's the truth that you know that sets you free, which means you got to know the truth. You have to know the truth of God's word. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 3, he would say that set your mind on things above. He would say in Philippians 4 that whatever is good, whatever is pleasing, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is excellent, think about these things. 
The naive individual and the naive Christian, they view their mind like a playground. So they let all kinds of garbage play on the swing set and on the merry-go-round of their mind. The naive Christian views their mind like it is a playground. The wise Christian, the blessed Christian, the wise individual doesn't view their mind as a playground. He or she views their mind like a battleground. And the way they prepare their mind for action is by meditating, steeping the richness of God's word into the hot water of their life. Listen, if you've ever watched The Simpsons, uh, you would, and I don't really, you know, encourage you to do it, but if you've ever have in the past, you know, the, the opening credits, they would kind of start, and then Bart, or excuse me, Homer, he would grab his son Bart by the neck and just start strangling him. Ah! Now, we can all agree that's child abuse and it shouldn't be, you know, he would be canceled in, in our culture today. But that is a beautiful picture of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when he says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. He says, take all that stinking thinking, all the things that are in your mind that you know do not conform and consist with the word of God. And he says, start putting it under submission to Jesus Christ, to what he says. Without getting ahead of myself, listen, nobody talks to you more than you do. Nobody talks. I don't care what your Apple phone says about your intake of technology last week, it being more than the week before. No matter how much you spend on time you spend on social media, how much time you spend on TikTok or whatever, nobody talks to you more than you do. So the thing that you have to ask yourself is, what am I telling myself? Am I telling myself truth? Am I telling myself the truth of what God has said? Just as we're reading in the prayer of assurance, what that the king rejoices over you, that that, that Zechariah 3 passage, that he is singing over you, that you have to tell yourself real things. If you're like me, you'll just be driving on 610 and start thinking about stuff that happened six years ago that really made you mad, and then you're like, dang, I thought I forgave that person. And and then all of a sudden I got to take that bad boy and put it in submission to Jesus Christ all over again. Because it's a continuum. Your mind is not a playground. Your mind is is a battleground. And this isn't anything new. Joshua chapter 1, God tells Moses, God tells Joshua in verse 2 of Joshua chapter 1, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's a statement right there. Now he says, you're next up. So that means now Joshua is about to lead a couple million people, of the Israelites, and he's their new leader. And of course, as you would imagine, he is scared, he is frightened, and God tells him over and over again the same thing. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Side note, when God has to tell you something over and over again, it's not because he has a speech impediment or he just likes to hear himself talk. It's because you really need to understand and grasp what he is that he's saying. Then he says this in verse 8. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. God says that if you want to have success, not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of the Lord, it includes meditating on his word and not just meditating for meditation's sake, but it leads to obedience. That it leads to obedience. This is what makes meditation so powerful. Let me give you an example when what meditation looks like. Let's say you take one verse, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's say that's your Bible reading for the morning on your you version, your memory verse, whatever it is. You read it in the day, and then you start taking it, and you start thinking about it over and over again. And you just running it over in your mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The word meditation also literally just means to grumble and to, and to mumble. So it's not just keeping it in your head, but it's also bringing it out of your mouth. So now it's like, okay, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The, you're on your way to car, you, maybe you put it on a sticky note, maybe you put a, a reminder on your phone. 
every two or three hours so that when you're at work, you'll get a reminder and then you'll walk to the restroom or walk to the, uh, uh, the, the little snack area in your job or if you're working at home to the kitchen and start praying and start thinking that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall. And then you start doing, you start having fun with it. You, start, you just take the, the first phrase, the Lord. Not just lowercase L-O-R-D, but capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name of God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you talk, Lord, you, 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 you're the God not just of, of the seven-mile road, not just, you're the God of the universe. And then you start making it applicable to your own life. The Lord is my shepherd. Mm, I love that. You're not just God. You're not just the shepherd of everybody. Lord, you don't just love all your people, but Lord, you, you are a unique shepherd that you take care of. You're my shepherd. I shall not want. Lord, you don't just provide all of my greeds, because you never promised to provide my greeds, but you do promise to provide all of my needs. I shall not want. Lord, there are things that I know that you will provide for your children because you have said so. So I can trust you even when I feel like it is delayed or I'm, on, or I'm in loading or things are in a season of waiting. And then you, you spend a day on that? You spend a week on that? You spend six months on Psalm 23.1 or whatever your passage is? Watch how, not only how it transforms your heart, but most importantly, watch how it transforms your life just meditating on it day and night. The reality is this. In our world, mental health has become a really big thing, and it's become an even bigger thing really since the pandemic. And I'm all for counselors, therapists, coaches, mentors. I got all of them. And yet what Psalm 1 is teaching you and I is that God is infinitely more concerned about your mental health than you are. Meditate on it day and night steeping over it. Let the intake of God's word hit the hot water of your heart and life until it transforms you from the inside out. And just like that cup of tea, now you start being transformed and start looking like it. Have you ever been around people that when they pray, they just start praying scripture? Not because they're trying to impress the people around them, but just because you've been around them long enough to know like, oh, that's who you are. That's an indication of an individual that has been steeping in the word of God, so much so that when they pray, they can't tell whether or not they're giving supplications from their own personal prayer journal or just praying God's word back to him, which, by the way, that's when the prayer really gets good. When you start taking God's word like a boomerang, you start throwing it back to him because then, you know, he honors his word, so he'll make something beautiful happen from it. Finally, in verse 3, he says, he gives a picture of what the blessed life looks like. He says this is what the, this is what the life and the picture of an individual who delights in God's word looks like. He says in verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. He says the blessed person, the righteous person, is like a tree planted by streams, plural, of water, which means this particular tree, regardless of the season, it continues to flourish and nourish and grow. Its leaves don't wither. Like it's it's prosperous not because of anything outside of itself, but because It's doing in, regardless of what the season and the context is, what it was intended to do. The context there is in the arid society, like it's a picture of flourishing even in a desert. He says that he is like a tree that is planted, that is producing fruit. Uh, Our church knows that I love talking about trees. Um, Somebody pointed me to the hidden life of trees, which if you're if you don't care, you know, throughout the pandemic, all, all I was doing was walking. So I was outside all the time. I was walking with my kids, and we were just seeing stuff. And so I just fell in love with trees. One thing I love about trees is that I think trees tell us a lot about human existence and human life. And, of course, in the Bible, you know, it begins with trees. The trees are all up in that thing. But 
Uh, if you know anything about bamboo trees, they're really dope because, you know, you plant them, and in the first three to four years, nothing grows, and then, like, in the fifth year, it goes, like, 60 to 80 feet or something like that, and it's remarkable. And I remind our church all the time that your life is like that bamboo tree that you deposit it into the ground, and the Word of God is working, but it's working underneath the surface. You may not see the fruit initially in the first year, in the second year, but a disciple of Jesus, you keep trusting him, you keep holding on to him, and in due time, a harvest will bear fruit. And uh, a couple weeks ago, or excuse me, a couple months ago, I reminded our church about the beauty of sequoia trees. Sequoia trees are different. They grow tall. If you've ever been in Northern California, they grow super tall, 200, 300 feet up in the air. But unlike the bamboo trees, they're not like hidden and their roots aren't going super deep. They are only built, or they, excuse me, they're only uh, deposited in groves, which means uh, the, the beauty of a sequoia tree is that the reason why they get so tall and why some of them has lasted for centuries since, and some uh, would say that some um, sequoia trees have been around even since the time of King David, is because they always grow next to one another. So if you look underneath the soil of a sequoia tree, it's connected, intermingled with other sequoia trees. Their strength is in the fact that they're growing tall up vertically because they're connected horizontally with one another. That's a really great picture of what the church is like. The way we grow strong in the Lord is being connected to one another in community together. But that ain't what this is talking about. It ain't talking about sequoia trees or bamboo trees. I just told you that because, you know, I love trees. And anytime, our, our, our church has already heard me use both those illustrations, but it's my second time here. And I was like, I don't think I used this last year, so let me use it this year. But what I love about this is that he gives this picture of what we would call evergreen trees. That no matter what the season is, it's always bearing fruit. That no matter what the season is, it's still flourishing. It's still growing. Every, you know, in Christmas time, people want to get evergreen trees. What the psalmist is saying is that in the same way that these streams of water are providing the nutrients and the flourishment for, for, this, for this evergreen tree to flourish. The Word of God provides the nutrients for your life so you can have an evergreen life. Will you draw near to Him? Last year when I was here, um, I was getting my mic check, and the band, they were singing Firm Foundation. Now, I almost lost it today when they started doing Corona, so I said, dang, they're doing all the hits. But the thing I loved about, I was, I was back there, the, um, I think Jason had hooked me up on the mic, and they started singing Firm Foundation, I almost lost it, man. I, you know, the song, Christ is the Firm Foundation, the rock on which I stand in. But in the middle, the drums stop, the percussion stops, and then it's just the voice, and then they switch it up, and it says, rain came, winds blew, but my house was built on you. It's the picture that my, that my life, my life, is rooted and grounded in the firm foundation of the Word of God. The question you have to ask yourself is, what are you building your life on? The blessed individual that he refers to here is building his life on the solid ground. Mark, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives this picture, one of a man who built his house on rock, the other who built his house on sand. The rain came, the wind blew. The one who built his house on rock still had his house standing. The one who built his house on sand, like the three little pigs, huffed and puffed and blew the house down. The point is that the foundation, the foundation that you build your life on matters. So, the way of life, meditating on the word of God, drawing near, letting it submerge deep into our hearts, that, it would, that we would be a, a people who live evergreen lives. But not only that, as we quickly round second base and third and head for home, we'll see really quickly the way of death. He says this, the wicked are not so, verses 4 and 5, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now he gets to the path of the wicked. 
to the way of death. He says, they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And in agricultural society, you take the wheat, take it to the threshing floor, boom, 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 beat it, beat it, beat it, uh, and then you would raise it up, and the wind, all the grain and all the good stuff that you want, the heavy stuff, would come down, and then the wind would blow the chaff away. What he's communicating here is that for the wicked, they're like that chaff, that their lives have no weight to it, that it will not, that they have nothing, when they stand before the Lord, they have nothing to stand on. Nothing to build their life on. The, he's saying that the ungodly life has absolutely no weight to it. As they come before the Lord, they have nothing to stand on. Listen, sometimes it is tempting, at least I know it is for me, when you look at people who have no care for the God of the Bible, and you're like, man, they seem to be flourishing. They don't care about the God I love. They don't worship the God I, they don't, but they seem to, their life seems to be going great. They don't have the issues that I deal with, and yet, Lord, you feel like, God, it, it seems like they're on the winning team. And if you've ever thought like that, I would encourage you, you're thinking like the psalmist. In Psalm 73, verses 12 through 14, the psalmist says this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches, all in vain have I kept my heart, clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The psalmist is saying, Lord, it looks like the evil and the wicked are winning. And frankly, we live in a culture where it seems like, man, if the, the more you exit God out of your life, the better seemingly your life will become. But if you skip down to verse 12 in, or excuse me, verse 17 in uh, Psalm 73, he, the psalmist then says, after he starts being bemoaning like God, man, like the evil, they're, they're triumphing. I'm taking L's and I'm with you. They're taking W's. And then in verse 17, he says, but then I entered into the sanctuary of God and I saw their end. What is he saying? He says, Lord, it wasn't until I gathered with your people. It wasn't until I came into the sanctuary until I remembered, oh, the wicked, they got nothing to stand on. Their lives are flighty and fluffy as dust. But I trust you. My hope is in you. It's anchored in you. Jesus tells a similar parable in Matthew 13. He says that the kingdom of God is like man who sows weed, he goes out, goes to sleep, and then his servants come back and say, hey, uh, we planted seeds for wheat, but I, we've seen some wheat, some weeds uh, along with the wheat. Should we go ahead and just start karate chopping all the, all the stuff out? He says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't take out all the weeds. Let them grow together. Let the wheat and the wheat grow together. And then he says, when judgment comes, after the harvest comes and everything, then we'll go and remove all of the weeds out. Jesus' point is, man, you're you're going to be living with the ungodly. You're going to go to school with the ungodly. That you'll be playing, having playdates with the wicked. But he says, uh, just wait. One, it, it's a picture of his grace because everyone in this room has been on that side. It was only by the grace of God that he transformed you from the path of the unrighteous and the path of the wicked to the path of the righteous through his son, which is indicated to you. It says, hey, even though you're going to be in and, amongst, in and amongst them, living with them, working with them, don't give up because I'm not finished yet. But when judgment comes, they'll have nothing to stand on. The question is, will you trust me? It's hard to trust God when we live in a culture where it seems like Following him means we're on the losing team, seemingly. But we have to have the end in mind, which brings us to our final point. Not only is it important that we know the way of life, the way of death, but finally, the way beyond. In verse 6, he says this, 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Finally, he sums up the contrast for both. He says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, while the way of the wicked will perish. He doesn't just know the righteous. He knows their way, that he knows their path, that he protects them, that he watches over them, that he preserves them. Now, the problem with this passage is that it only gives two ways and only two ways. You're either on the path of the righteous or you're on the path of the unrighteous. You're either the path of the godly or the path of the ungodly. Now, when you read a passage like this, it's easy. Most of us just have the inclination to think, oh, I got to be the blessed man. I got to be on the side of the righteous. But the problem with that is uh, the picture that that the psalmist gives of this blessed individual means he's perfectly blessed and perfectly righteous. All that means he's never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He's never walked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. And I don't know about you, uh, I remember vividly walking in the counsel of the wicked. I call that high school. I, I remember it as, as despite my parents' best effort, and, and the same is true for you. Nobody in this room can read Psalm 1 and say, oh yeah, that's your boy or that's your girl, that's me. The point that the psalmist is trying to make is that nobody in this room fits this description, but the one who has brought everybody in this room does. Listen to what Jared Wilson says about Psalm chapter 1. He says, Jesus is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but in perfect submission to the Father. Jesus is the man who does not sit or stand in the way of sinners, but is the friend of sinners, becoming the way himself, that they find salvation. Jesus is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, but in the seat of mercy. Jesus is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and he lives to intercede for his siblings. Jesus is the man who on the law meditates day and night, for he does not sleep nor slumber, and his holiness is everlasting. Jesus is like a tree, the tree of life, planted by the streams of water, living water, that whoever drinks of it will never be thirsty again. Water that yields its fruit in its season, the fruit of the Spirit, against which there is no law, and its leaf does not wither, but instead is the true vine in whom we abide as branches. In all that he does, Jesus prospers. He never fails. Jesus is the blessed man, and those who trust in him by faith are blessed men and women because our lives are found in him. Jesus in John 7, 14, 6, before he says he is the truth, before he says he is the life, he says he is the way. He is the way of life. He is life itself. And what the psalmist is communicating is that if you avoid the God of the Bible, if you avoid this blessed man, you are on the way, you are essentially on the road and on the way of death. But if you harness this blessed man, if you embrace this blessed man, if you give him everything you have, you will find yourself on the way beyond. He is the way. As I close this semester, I've really been, uh, it was great, this past semester because um, the new season of Mandalorian came on Disney+. And listen, I didn't grow up loving Star Wars, but for some reason, man, I love the Mandalorian. And one of the things about the show, The Mandalorian, is that if you watch it, one of the things that you'll constantly see, if you know anything, The Mandalorian keeps his helmet on the whole time, and he's always fighting for the least and the poor and the marginalized. And then when you ask him, why are you doing what you're doing, he'll respond, this is the way. When you say, why don't you never take off your helmet so we can see your face? He did one episode. But why don't you ever take off your, why, why do Mandalorians always keep their helmets on? They don't give you an answer. They say, this is the way. The psalmist is saying, This is the way. 
the way of life, the way beyond, is through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. May we be people who draw near to him, join his way, journey with him, and invite those who are on the way of death to journey with us on the way of life, life everlasting. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives, that we would be people like that hot cup of water, that we take the intake of your word, dipping it and letting it submerge in the richness of our lives, that we would be transformed from glory to glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.